Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Robin Hood Men in Tights is over, so it's time to parry, parry, thrust, thrust. Good! 20th Century Fox presents the motion picture event of the summer. The summer of 1125 A.D. That's him! Robin Hood! Good evening. The Hoods from the Woods are back. Yo, yo, yo! Check it out! Little John. Ow! Prince John. More bubbles! Oh, yeah, just now it's happening. The Sheriff of Rottingham. I challenge you to a duel. <laughs> I accept. Maid Marian. A chastity belt? It's an Everlast. And a Rabbi Tuckman. Hello, boys. He's the first action hero. Man, white men can't jump. Andy, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. This, officially, is a chance to breathe. In We've our mega series of Robin to breathe. <laughs> well, it depends on, <laughs> depends on is, is light comedy what it takes to breathe? <laughs> Well, yeah, I think it is for me, for sure. I need to just more so take than breath. a change of pace because there have been some changes of pace. There have been definitely been changes of pace. Paces have been changed. I know. I feel like uh, you know, it's always fun to revisit Mel Brooks. I have a good time with Mel Brooks, and um, and I I feel like I I think this is an interesting film for him to work on, uh, or for him to choose to to contribute to, to his catalog of films. I I remember when it came out being confused uh that this was what he chose to do and uh, so I'm glad we get to it as as part of this series. It seems strange that we get to Mel Brooks by way of Robin Hood to me uh but we've we've done it. Uh where does <laughs> where, where what are your what are your thoughts on Mel Brooks and and his contribution to Robin Hood? Well, this was my first time watching this one. What? I, what? What? <laughs> I I skipped this one uh, because I Mel Brooks is very much a hit or miss for me, and I I struggle with um, probably more of his films than I enjoy. And so I saw this one come out, and as much as I loved Carrie Elwes at the time, um, even with him starring in it, I just thought this looked really ridiculous and silly and parody films uh often are something that i really struggle with i i find i don't often connect with the jokes because i i find i connect with the jokes more when the parody is actually a strong one and i feel like they're really doing it and in the case of mel brooks this and certainly holds true with this there's a level of parody but then there's also just the really dumb jokes and i think that mel brooks is one of those guys who just wants to throw as many jokes into the mix as he possibly can and you know if if you know 60 to 75 percent of them hit he's probably happy i and I felt that was definitely true here. And I feel it's definitely of its time. So I think that my level of appreciation for it probably uh, worked because we're doing this series, because 
I have so many Robin Hood stories in my head right now. And watching this after watching all those other ones, I think hit at a good time when I can appreciate this more. Uh, what are the Mel Brooks movies that do work for you? Uh, Young Frankenstein's at the top. Okay. Um, Spaceballs, although I haven't seen it in a long time. So I wonder if it if it still holds up or if now I find that its pleasure is waning. And The Producers, which we talked about before. And uh, that's mostly it. Hmm. Some of them, I will say, warrant rewatches, like Silent Movie. Um, high Anxiety. High Anxiety. Those two. I, History of the World Part 1. Come History, on. History of the World Part 1, I actually do enjoy that one quite a bit. All right. Um, Silent Movie had an amazing premise, and I am not. I'm not, my memory of it is, it, it leads me to believe that it wouldn't hold up for the whole movie like it did when I first saw it. And that's one that I feel like I've only seen scenes of it. I don't feel like I ever ended up watching that entire thing. So Blazing so, Saddles is not on your list. I don't, I've never liked that one. I don't know yeah. why, but I know, yeah. I know it's a favorite among a lot of people, but for me, I just have never really uh, connected with it. Well, and. I'll also yeah. wildly divisive now, like on rewatch, it's one of those that, you know, is it one of those movies that just doesn't, it doesn't fly uh, on rewatch. And I, I have not watched it in a number of years. And so um, I, I feel like, and he doesn't have that many director credits. So I, I feel like it might be time to do a Mel Brooks series and just <laughs> knock all of these out. If only to get to the pinnacle of his work, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Which, I thought you were going to say Life Stinks. Either, no, way, I mean, either way, either <laughs> you're way, right, you're right at the peak there. <laughs> right, right. Well, how do you want to talk about the big questions? This is a new thing. Yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, let's just talk. So I, I think that this is a good idea to to look at some kind of bigger things about this story and how it fits into Robin Hood and the whole myth of, and the lore. Um you know, why and I, this is something that I heard often, and I don't know if it's really true, but I heard that uh, a sign of a genre kind of dying or a story form kind of dying is when the comedy, the versions of it, like when the, somebody starts making fun of it, that's kind of a sign that you've had too much and it's time, you know, people want something new. And I heard that about Blazing Saddles uh, as far as Westerns go. I think there were still were successful Westerns, maybe not as many after that, kind of into the 70s and 80s. I think Dances with Wolves certainly kind of rejuvenated the the genre. But I think that that is something that, you know, I think you could say there is something about that, that, you know, a, a story plays so much that somebody wants to parody it because of all the tropes that come along with it. And is that a sign that it's played? Like, would you say, by the time we're at this point, uh, I mean, we just had two Robin Hood movies that we've talked about on this show, you know, the two years before this one came out, not to mention all the other Robin Hoods before and all the ones we haven't talked about. Was the Robin Hood story just ready for parody? And was it a sign that people just didn't want to hear it anymore? Well, I think that's a really great um, question. And especially when you look at the number of Robin Hood movies that have been released since and, uh, you know, sort of the pace of Robin Hood movies, I'd be interested to see like a frequency chart of Robin Hood movies over the last hundred years. Um, I'm sure there are Robin Hood movies that I don't that I don't know that certainly that we're not talking about, but there are far fewer since 1993 
to my knowledge, than after. So is this one of those sort of cart before the horse things where it, you know, a sign that a movie has had a thorough lampooning through parody? Is that a sign that we're at the end of this narrative that it's played out? Or is it sort of the, the thing that tells people, oh, it's been parodied. Now it's played out. Can you say the same thing of uh, the Scream movies and the, you know, the Wayans brothers with scary movie, right? Scary movies, right? Yeah. And then Uh, they they spurred off this whole thing of like, you know, the, you know, uh, what were the what were those other parodies that started coming out like superhero movie? And and, uh, you know, I can't remember, but they had that whole series of them that I never even bothered with. Right. Right. And and so. Yeah. And so this this is the thing that got me thinking, which is what does it take for Mel Brooks to do a parody, to decide to take on uh, a parody? Because this is, you know, it's kind of his stock and trade for uh, for a couple of genres, certainly. And I, I think the Western and the space uh, space opera and, uh, you know, this um, that, you know, what what are the things that make him uh, like that make his jokes resonant? in the form of parody or satire. Um, and, and he dances between the two. Parody as as just sort of a an entree to satire. Like this movie, I I, I get very little of, uh, of the satire. There's some of it that, that we'll talk about, but um, certainly not the weight of the message that he's getting to with a movie like The Producers, which I think has a much more sort of resonant context. Yes. So so this movie, you know, when it I, I often hear people talk about it, it's it's a lesser Mel Brooks movies as his his movies tend to be the movies that he directed tend to be categorized as like the 70s and then the later <laughs> Mel Brooks movies. Right. <laughs> that that just sort of are on a kind of steady downhill. And I think it was uh, Gene Siskel who said, you know, the, the comedy film is, is train is passing uh, Mel Brooks by. So, you know, what what is it that the kind of thing that signals it's time to do a parody like this? Well, and that's, you know, it's an interesting thing to even talk about because, I mean, I wouldn't even say that the producers was a parody. It's just it's a it's a comedy and he's certainly is making fun of a type of people, but it's not not, he's not parodying something. That's yeah, that's what I mean. That's that's like the line of satire, right? He is definitely the kinds of things that are going on in that film are, are satirical in nature. But even when you go into and no Blazing Saddles was more of a, a parody of kind of the Western genre. Uh, but Young Frankenstein, I don't think was a parody. I would say that that one, the strengths of it, I mean, because I mean, you can't in 1974, you're not doing a parody of silent or not silent, but early kind of universal horror movies that you're like way too late to, to decide, yeah. hey, let's parody these. He's just yeah, you're doing, right. It's almost it's an homage, right? At it, this right, point, he's exactly. paying reverence to exactly. these movies. He, and it's a very and, and what he did is he he kind of references a lot of it, but he does it by telling a very smart story and and making a very fun story out of that whole thing. Now I, I think that the what he fell into after that and kind of through the later 70s and into the 80s is largely just doing parody. And it's no surprise that he ends up doing Leslie Nielsen at the end because that's kind of the level of comedy that he kind of ended at. You know, he just kind of, his comedy devolved down into that type of comedy. And so I think, I don't know, I think he he latched on to the fact that he ended up with a script that had 
it, I mean, it, there's a lot of fun elements with it and with Robin Hood so fresh in people's memories because Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves had just made so much money two years before. It makes sense that he'd say, oh, this is great. It's making fun of a lot of these things. I can do this and, and do a fun parody of it. And then there's a lot of other just that other comedy in there that that falls in. And honestly, I mean, after Life Stinks, which I think got some pretty terrible reviews for him, he was looking for something that was a stronger parody like Spaceballs, which was a big hit because it was it was a parody of a huge success, Star Wars. And that really helped out. Life Stinks, I, I don't think that was a parody on anything. I think it was just a straight up story by him. And uh, it just, you know, was kind of one of those dumb stories that they came up with that didn't do any good. It was uh, not anything good. And so I think he was trying to come off of that. This is all just hunch. But um, I, I think that it worked because by looking at a recent property that was already so big in the box office, it was a way to say, hey, let's tackle something that was a hit and use that, use the kind of the momentum of that to kind of build for us. It's going for the easy A. And that is, even though, as one of the lesser Mel Brooks films, I laugh at this movie. There are jokes that are funny, even the lowbrow jokes. I laugh at this movie. But the the and, and I should say my kids were howling at this movie. But it feels under workshopped. Uh, And that, (laughs) I think, is is an interesting like it, it, it makes the film have just carry less cultural weight it, it because uh it, it is almost too simple for its own good right i yeah. i don't understand and i think this gets to my perspective on this big question of of you know is robin hood ripe for parody i don't think it is i think it's parroting a movie that i didn't like all that much principally and the lore that it's capturing i don't I don't think that the the weight of Robin Hood, steal from the rich, give to the poor, deal with the the religious undertones and and overtones of uh, the um, the unholiest of holy wars, the Crusades, and do all that on a guy's wearing pantyhose joke. It just does. <laughs> it's not enough. And I think right. that's the challenge that this movie has. I don't think people care enough about Robin Hood uh, to make for sound historical satire. I mean, it's a property that everybody knows. So I guess to that end, he's, you know, it's it's almost like he could do it uh, as he could have done a parody that really felt more timeless. You know, there are a lot of elements in the story that everybody is familiar with, because as we've discussed and continue to point out, there are so many versions of this story that have been told um, through the through the years. And so it's just one of those things like, you know, give us something that has the has the staying power as a parody that that can last because, you know, of all these other things. And there are elements in here. But then he throws in so many other other elements. And this is where I struggle with you know, like some of these parodies of his because I'm like it, it, he's turning he's taking the so many of the simplest jokes and putting them in that become elements of their time very specific like the little rap that we have with the merry men that just feels super early 90s yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) like straight out of the early 90s we have um you know just simple jokes that just i mean i guess that 
they're timeless, quote unquote, but it doesn't mean they're smart jokes, like the moving mole around the guy's face and things like mm-hmm. that. It's like, what? Well, I didn't know I had a mole. It's like, it's it's some of those jokes. I, well, one, they just, they don't feel like they're, that it takes that much to get to a joke like that. And also it feels a little bit like Mel Brooks is kind of ripping himself off. Like, you know, the whole what hump thing that he already did in Young Frankenstein. Exactly, yes. And so that's that's why it's frustrating. Cause I, and I appreciate that he's trying to do this story, but I just feel like, like you said, it needed to be workshopped more. You know, have some other voices in here really strengthen the jokes and make for a story that is doing a lot more than just some of the base humor that we have here with some of these goofy sex jokes. And just, I mean, some of the jokes are just are just kind of embarrassing to watch now. I, I'm interested in your take on the other side of that, right? He, you, you said that he's ripping himself off with the what hump, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. That is a that was played, and it, it's funny. Whatever, I, I kind of moved on. The other thing that I, I submit makes it less timeless is that many of the simplest jokes are directly related to an understanding of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Like, you have to have seen that Little John thinks he's drowning in two feet of water in Prince of Thieves to find it funny that Little John thinks he's drowning in an inch of water in this movie. (laughs) And uh, I I almost feel like you were too gracious just now when you laughed at me telling you that joke because I did not find it funny. And I was very frustrating, uh, you know, apart from seeing a very large man splash around in the mud. Um, I, 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 I think those kinds of jokes, he has tied those jokes around the neck of this movie. And the every year that passes makes them less, uh, less funny less resonant, less like attached to our time. The problem I have with that parentheses is that he says that it is, I think he said it was Spaceballs and um, Men in Tights that are his biggest selling uh, properties in home video. Uh, That boggles my mind. So that's from uh, Mel Brooks in an interview. So I, I, I don't know what, you know, where he gets that data, but I find that interesting. Well, I think it's possible because I know a lot of people who just love this movie. And I I mean, sure, I think on a on, there's a level where you can watch this and enjoy it. And I, let me step back yes. for a minute because I, yeah. I, I'm I'm leaving a point out that I think makes this movie work a lot better than uh, maybe it should. And that is the casting of Carrie Elwes as as Robin Hood. He was so perfect to cast for this film. He he has the charisma, he has the charm, he has the everything that you need that Errol Flynn had back in 1938 that works so brilliantly in this film. And on top of that, he is willing to go along with everything that Mel Brooks wants him to do, and he plays it to a T. He is so perfect in this movie. I can't get over how much I loved him and everything he did here. And if I didn't already love Carrie Elwes, I would totally have just said he's just he's one of the best because he's just is so charismatic and he is he plays the jokes really just just spot on perfect for what the jokes need to be. Doesn't mean the jokes always work, but he still plays them well. His facial expressions, everything. And I think that actually is one of the reasons that people do love this because it's something that they can really gravitate to the character and and some of these elements that that end up 
being something that you can find and enjoy in this film. I agree. He's absolutely beloved in this movie. He's just perfect. And it's because of his commitment to being the straight guy uh, and do crazy things uh, and and stay absolutely true to the absurdity of this character. And if you watch the there's a half hour behind the scenes, uh, you know, that that was paired when this movie was released that you can find on YouTube that for which he is the uh, in character is the host. And it is as good. It's every bit as good of a performance of him as Robin Hood as he is, you know, interviewing characters, other actors in the movie with the mic jammed up the neck of a rubber chicken. And I mean, those (laughs) kinds of weird, like dopey things. It is a silly idea. And yet somehow Carrie Elwes in character of Robin Hood doing this. He pulls it off and he makes it worth a laugh. I I think uh, I, I get a lot out of his performance here. Definitely, definitely. Have you seen uh, you? You're behind on TV. You haven't seen uh, Stranger Things. No, I haven't. But I know he's in. I know he's in there. He's in the mayor. He's the mayor yeah. of C- of the town in season three, and he's fantastic. I have, um, you know, I didn't watch uh, Billionaire Bo- Boys Club, and I I feel like I've missed a lot of of uh, his stuff over the years. But this is one of those movies that reminds me why. Uh, anytime I do see him, he's just that good. He's just yeah. great. Yeah, he's a, he's a great. He works so well in stories. Yeah. I mean, he just really does. The um, what was I going to say? Let's talk a little bit. Can we talk a little bit about some other? Uh, 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 let me ask you this. Let me ask you it this way about Carrie Elwes. Uh, how do you think he does channeling the channeling humor out of the role of Robin Hood lore, right as it stands? I think that he's up for the task. I think that uh, this is one of those things where I think that it ends up being a hit or a miss. You know, I think there are jokes that uh, that come from the lore. Like, I think he does a great and this is something else I, I do appreciate about it is there there are moments where I should say that they're parodying other Robin Hood. So we, we mm-hmm. do see him walking into the cat, the um, Prince John's feast with the dead, in this case, pig over his over his shoulders and he throws it on the table in front of him. Um, so we, we have that moment referencing the 1938 film. And so I appreciate that they're throwing those in there, but like moments like that, I think he, he carries it. And I think he's, he's living the parody well in context of what the film needs. There are some things like he pulls the arrow out and it's like the little drop down thing where it's like six arrows and he kind of, so he could shoot them all at once. It's a silly little gag and it's, it's playing into kind of how they did some of the stuff in Robin Hood uh, Prince yep. of Thieves, um, you know, but I, I think the reason that he ends up making it work is because he's believing it and he's playing into all of it with authenticity. I I actually I laughed at that bit and I laughed even harder at the Patriot Arrow yeah. uh, because that is that's just smart funny. Uh, and I was, I, I was into it. I was into the whole through the forest. I was into the tree splitting, uh, the works, uh, that anything with the arrows I thought was funny. And, uh, he tells a story of, uh, there, there's a sequence where he needs to actually make, he actually has to make the shot of, a, a bullseye shot. And he was given three takes and he, he did it himself. He made a bullseye, uh, on the third take. And uh, that is something he still talks about in interviews today. <laughs> uh, so I, I agree with you. I think he does uh, handle the the Robin Hood lore 
it's it's funny. I mean, in terms of looking at how they lampoon one of the central tenets of the of the lore, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor. What are your what are your thoughts on that? His do gooderness. You know, it's funny that you asked me that because now I'm like, I don't remember much of that. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's it's lacking. It's yeah. not it, it's it's one of those things because this is really just uh, well, gosh, in context of them. That's a to trick par- question because I can't yeah. remember much either. And it's really yeah. frustrating because that is one of the central like themes of the right of right. the story is the equality of the of the people. Yeah, it's like in context of them wanting to do such a parody of um Prince of Thieves and taking the whole thing with Marion in the castle and needing to get her out and all of that, that becomes the story. It's like, you know, the story is these guys have to get the girl, he's got to train the merry men and he's got to uh, get the girl out of the hands of the bad guys. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a key element that uh, that's a sign of a Mel Brooks parody here where yeah. he's very much leaving out kind of the crux of the the actual story and instead he is just straight up just you know making a goofy story i'll tell you a better parody of robin hood in context of giving back to the poor is time bandits with john yes. cleese yes uh, when he's like oh the poor you know whatever he says and yeah and they give them something and then punch them on their way out <laughs> the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor. Yes. Uh, that I think that's exactly right, and I think that's a miss because those are jokes that uh, you know you watch those jokes, you get those still hold true. Like those are timeless jokes in Time Bandits. Like that yeah. is a timeless sequence uh, because it, we can, through the lens of Robin Hood, see exactly what is going on right now, today, around the world, and that that is what is wholly missing in Men in Tights. Uh, at the cost of the light jokes. At the the cost of light jokes that, again, because so many of them are targeting Prince of Thieves two years before, it does feel dated. You know, I mean, we have the whole Azim thing is, uh, you know, from Prince of Thieves is parodied in this film with Achu uh, (laughs) and his father. Uh, Was it Asneez? Uh, played by Isaac yeah. Hayes, which was funny to see him pop yeah. up in here. Uh, you know, you know, and it's it's fun. It's nice to see Dave Chappelle popping up in here, but in context of giving us the bigger story, it just doesn't do it. Uh, let's talk then a little bit about Marion Syndrome. Mm. One of the great frustrations of Marion, since we're lampooning Prince of Thieves principally here, and one of the great frustrations that we talked about is that um, Marion starts out as a fantastic, strong ninja soldier, and she ends as a uh, whining whelp being dragged up the stage or up the stairs. And here we have Amy Yazbek playing Marion, and she, they just lean in heavily at the beginning by giving her a chastity locker around her hips, which um, I don't know that I was. I mean, even when I first saw this movie, I don't think the idea of a chastity belt hit home with me. I did not understand the point. Uh, I did. I didn't understand the history of the idea of chastity wear. I. I and I've never <laughs> invested wear. any time uh, in uh, my intellectual pursuits to understand it. Do you have? Uh, do you have a reaction to this treatment of the character? 
so I felt there were a couple things that he was trying to spoof here. One was also kind of the the princess locked in the tower sort of, you know, Disney princess sort of thing, you know, with her locked away and singing her song. Uh, that felt very much of kind of those sorts of films that that Mel was also targeting. Well, I guess as a footnote, the one true love bit at the end, the key that flies through the air and yeah. lands in the lock, sure. I don't know. I, I can't tell if it's working for me as a parody of kind of what has become of the typical damsel in distress in these films. You know, do I, you know, is he is he doing a good job of making fun of it? And I feel like probably not if I'm, you know, muddled about it. I feel like as much as I struggled with the last Robin Hood film that we talked about, John Irvin's one, at least Marion in that one, uh, Uma Thurman's character, was a little more active and was doing stuff. And in this one, I mean, she really is just kind of this, you know, damsel there. There's not a whole lot to her. The the problem I have with it, and I think that what makes it dated, I probably laughed at all these gags when I first saw this movie in in, in whenever. I, I probably laughed at all of this, and that's, uh, it's fine. You know, I uh, it is what it is. <laughs> The challenge I have today is that, and I think the reason that that it, it feels dated is that the humor is it it it's focusing on the um on on the things that make Marion and by extension women weak, right? Weak and must be protected and must be you know uh, coddled and locked up and put in a tower. And I I think. What we've seen is that culture has moved on from um, those ideas, and what makes the humor more funny is when you focus on the strength and when the contrast between the uh, blonde hair, blue eyed hero and the damsel is not that he must go in and rescue her, but that he goes in and can't rescue her because she is empowered to take care of herself. Right. And I think that's where like the we have many more opportunities for humor as her role belittles him uh, that may, would have made their relationship a, a much more sort of timeless relationship and made the jokes more funny because it's going to take a lot longer for us to get tired of, um, you know, laughing at white guys uh, than it is taken for us to to get tired of laughing at everybody else. Like, I feel like we're we those are jokes that need to be hashed out. That's very true. I mean, you know, let's laugh at the, you know, the woman with her chastity belt. Let's laugh at, you know, these these guys because they're. You know, they're in tights and let's, you know, have gay jokes about them. Let's, you know, have. There you, you know, go. That's the other point, isn't it? Yeah, like, right. like uh, really, the the gay stereotypes, is that a, is that a, okay, did, how funny did we find that? It's hard to watch now. Well, it was, it was the mid 90s. I feel like there was a lot more of that, sadly, back then. Uh, yeah. It's, we it's, were, we it's were born in the wrong era, man. Yeah, it's it, there. <laughs> there are rough elements in here that, and that's what you know. Again, latches it on really hard to that early '90s, and it doesn't yeah. make this a film that, for me, ends up becoming timeless. What did you laugh at? Did you? I mean, you have to laugh. Oh at yeah, yeah. Something. I know. Right? I, there, was were, there were there were things that were funny in here. Um, I'm trying to think right now. Um, okay, something that I thought was funny when uh, when Achu 
it, well, it, it's when it's the bridge scene. It's the famous bridge scene when we have uh, Robin needing to get across the bridge and uh, little John is standing on it and won't let him cross. And it turns into this thing that's going to be a fight. And Achu is just like, dude, you can jump across this water. Look, yeah. <laughs> I'm on yeah. one side, I'm on, one side. I'm on the, other side. the other side. <laughs> the other side. That made me laugh. I thought that was very funny, you know, and because it, it was this point of pride sort of thing, whatever he needed to do to do it. Yeah. It just, uh, that was the sort of thing that I thought worked. I, I liked, <laughs> I kind of liked um, Rottingham. I thought he was played pretty well. I thought his character was... Uh, um, a fun one. Oh, I think um, Roger Reese is so funny. And yeah. I, I think he he got every bite out of his role here. Yeah, he clearly is enjoying just kind of being the over-the-top yeah. antagonist and just being so goofy, which I, I had a great time with. And so I think when you look at those two things, and there were just other elements that were kind of the... I, I appreciated the the play with some of these old ones like when they're all dressed up like women which was kind of a little nod to the disney's robin hood yep. uh, you know there were things like that that i'm like okay they're kind of doing that um i'm trying to think um i love dom deloise coming in dom as, deloise with his godfather bit was yeah out the godfather of the blue. bit yeah it was very funny yeah i wanted to enjoy tracy ullman's character because i love tracy ullman but i i really struggled with the whole witch bit that she was doing i'm like eh. Her face well, looked the, like a badly the witch done bit Muppet. That I think was, again, a boat anchor on this movie to the 90s, that it is so tied to Prince of Thieves. Yeah. That, you know, we have no witch in Robin Hood lore. That is not connected for anybody, right? right I mean, that's right. not a thing that we have in the hundred years of movies prior. And so, like, for, for them to invest so heavily in this role for her, um, it, it just doesn't play. It yeah. just doesn't play. And her final line, her final big line, I was this close. I touched it. Right. That <laughs> right. like sex gag is Ugh. it's so dumb. It is just yeah. it, it's ju I really struggled with that. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's what I struggle with these Mel Brooks films, because his humor just falls into like the basest jokes. And sure, I mean. There are plenty of times where I really enjoy just kind of sitting down, turning my brain off and just watching something that does have these base jokes yeah. or a base level action movie or whatever it is. You know, that's the sort of thing that sometimes your brain just needs. And so, again, I get it why people would like to watch this movie, because it has that. But it's nothing that I would want to return to because that's all it is for the bulk of it. They did some fun uh, camera stuff, I, a little bit at least. The the one nod that I, I particularly liked was the shadow shot. We spent some time talking mm. about the silhouette shot uh, during yeah, the sword from the, fight. From the 38 um, version. From the 38 version. And we have that. Uh, they they do that here. And then, um, you know, I don't have it off the top of my head. What would be funnier? But the hand shadow puppets, I, I feel like, was selling the opportunity short. Yes. I, I saw where they're going with it. I'm like, okay, they're they're pulling that reference. What are they going to do with it? And then it turned into that. I'm like, uh, they yeah. could have found something else that would have made that work better. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but they could have found something. Case in point to the uh, the that the, the film is under workshopped. 
Yes. Case in point, this is that. And the following shot during that same fight, we get a little fourth wall breakage when um, I think it's Robin who does a thrust and he thrusts right through the castle wall and you see a, a gaffer eating a bagel and he skewers the bagel. Hey! And uh, again, I thought that was uh, a not laugh-worthy distraction from the sword fight. Yeah, there was another weird fourth wall break when I want to say, gosh, I can't remember. It was, uh, you know, a group of people coming into the castle and the camera is over them as they're coming and you see the the abbots oh it's when dick van patten is coming and that and his staff like he comes under the camera and his staff is so high that it <laughs> slams into the camera and shakes the camera and it's like yeah. okay that was a weird fourth wall break like what yeah. was the point of that other than just to have it in there because it's a mel Brooks movie that's it. And it's Dick Van Patten. And it's, it, you know, for me, that one, I chuckled at, but I had exactly the same thought let, that, God, these fourth wall breaks would be so funny if they were set up better. Like if I yeah. had any reason to to want them to be there. And right now it was just, yeah, it just didn't. didn't well, and fly. so here, so going back to our big questions earlier, do yeah. you feel like this is where we were with these parody movies, like in 93 and, and, the, and, not that either of us have seen them, but all these like superhero movie, all those kind of parodies that have continued. Do you think that they have followed this trajectory and just kept delivering more of the same rhetorical question? Or do you think that there's a chance that there can still be a parody that becomes a smart parody of a story in today's marketplace? That's oh, not just this yeah. same level of humor. Yeah, no, I absolutely think we can have a well, and I think we have uh, more opportunities for smart satire and uh, and by extension parody. And I think you get shows that have uh, attempted to do that in in different ways. I, I think there's an Amazon show right now that uh, I'll, it's a political show that has gotten some great reviews. I've had it on my list for a while to watch. I need to yeah, look yeah. it up. Um, and so I think we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot more of that. Um, you know, you get shows like uh, that are based on comic properties like The Boys. If you haven't watched The Boys, that is definitely making a statement uh, about a lot of things, not the least of which, or at least on a a level uh, about superhero culture, but even beyond that, about business corporatization, um, you know, the law, uh, all of those kinds of, uh, of elements that and I think it's doing it in a really interesting and smart way. And, and it's not doing it in a way that belittles the source content. There you go. That's a that is a, a position that I am willing to take that the the parody and the satire that I like the most does not belittle the source content. And I think that's in in large part where uh, the problems that I have with Spaceballs, the problems that I have with Men in Tights, they belittle the source content in a kind of uncomfortable way. It's a problem I don't have with Young Frankenstein. I don't feel like any of that belittles those uh, early monster movies. It really does so in an honor to those monster movies. The producer. I think they just they're smart and they're telling an interesting story. And these movies going lowbrow uh, do so at the expense of their source and not thanks to it. Well, I guess that's to a certain extent. I mean, that is part of the definition of a parody, though, right? Like it's it is kind of making fun of it a little bit. It's it's a little more of a caricature of it. Um, whereas, and, and maybe this is the thing, maybe the two of us, we appreciate a satire, a smart satire of something yeah. rather than something that is just, just using the base level of what a parody offers, where it's d just doing nothing, but really just kind of making fun of 
of it in kind of that goofy sort of way. Okay, so this needs to be a list. In turn, make a note. We need to, for Saturday matinee, we need the list of uh, parodies that don't belittle their source material. And here's what I'm thinking. There is an experience that you have, like, let's say you're on a playground and you're a kid and you're all standing around in a group and somebody starts making fun of somebody else. Are they doing so in a way that demonstrates something humorous about that person or are they doing so in a way to hurt them? And would the movie want to go back behind the shed and cry or would the movie want to laugh along with everybody else? Yeah, that's the thing. Is it a crying movie or is it a laughing along movie? (laughs) And I think this movie, come on, you know, this is this is hitting you right in the feels. This whole playground thing. Uh, Is this a movie? (laughs) Is Men in Tights going to send Prince of Thieves behind the shed to cry? Oh, in turn, put that on a shirt. Well, it won't because of Carrie Elwes' smile. That's, That's the thing right. that at least saves it. That's right. <laughs> Truly. You, you found you found something about uh, the origins of the script that I thought was pretty interesting. I thought this was funny. Uh, yes, a- apparently, young Jordy Chandler was 11 years old when she saw Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And she went and she told her father, who was a dentist, and a dentist's name is Evan Chandler. And Evan Chandler was had had a massive uh, Hollywood uh, dental practice, and many of the people that sat in his chair were, uh, you know, writers, directors, uh, producers in Hollywood. And so he happened to be talking to one of his uh, patients, uh, and that was David Shapiro uh, during the appointment. And Chandler and Shapiro agreed that they should put together the first draft of the screenplay based on this idea that Jordy Chandler, 11-year-old dental patient uh, uh, Jordy Chandler, had somebody needs to make a parody of Prince of Thieves. And they're the ones who sold it to Brooks. And they actually have the story credit uh, on that. It apparently was heavily revised by Mel Brooks when he got his hands on it. But uh, I thought that was an interesting story. You never know where these things are going to come from. Most uh, filmmakers, you know, go to their dentists to find money to because dentists are, you know, supposedly filthy rich. <laughs> this is a great case of going to your dentist to actually find the story. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Works out pretty well. I think that's fantastic. Uh, we haven't so mentioned funny. anything about the king. Um, no, no, and I think haven't. this was a you know the king uh, that we have in the film is the wonderful Patrick Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like Patrick Stewart so much, and I heard him talk at a uh, a I can't remember it was either, it was a probably a Star Trek convention that I went to back in college. That, somebody that checks out, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> somebody mentioned that you know this was one of their favorite movies because of course it is, and and they loved him in it. And you know what was it like? How you know being a, being a part of this movie? And he just talked about you know it was so fun just coming in for the day or a couple days that he came in. He's he's like a, a wonderful group of people to work with. We just had nothing but laughs and a good time. And I think that's. I think on that side of things, that's probably why a lot of people do enjoy working on these Mel Brooks movies, because it's just a fun atmosphere and everything. And, you know, you get to come in and just do a lot of fun stuff. Um, and for Patrick Stewart, sure. I mean, he's hardly in it. and uh, But yeah. it was a great little cameo to see him pop up in there. That was an interesting thing that Mel Brooks said in this interview was that, you know, most people like quiet on the set. Most directors, they want quiet on the set. They need to think and process. And he said, that's exactly the opposite for me. I need chaos. I need people to be having a good time all the time. And uh, let's have some rambunctiousness. That's where funny comes from is, you know, when people are playing. 
Um, apparently, and this is from James Robert Parrish's book, It's Good to Be the King, The Seriously Funny Life of Mel Brooks, Sean Connery said to Brooks that he would, quote, repeat his role of the monarch. Uh, this from uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, his cameo. But this time in drag. <laughs> However, intriguing as this comic prospect was, he wanted a one million dollar salary, which he planned to donate to Scottish charities. Uh, and so Patrick Stewart got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's related there. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not sure if even the king showing up in drag would have been appropriate for this movie. It, that would have been an odd choice. It would have yeah. been then I really would have been scratching my head. I know it would have been the whole, uh, you know, Sean Connery thing saying, okay, it's Sean Connery, but now he's in drag. But yeah, it's like, where is that going? How are they, where's the right. parody of that other than just to do it? Don't worry. His horse would have run headlong into the camera. <laughs> oh, so, that is okay then. That's a hat on a hat on a hat. You know, I mean, it's it's an enjoyable enough cast. I mean, there were familiar faces. Richard Lewis is in there. Um also, uh, and I, but a lot of them that I didn't know as well, but I thought they all did fine jobs in context of what they were doing. And that's what, you know, I think what I appreciated most about this is I think that Mel Brooks cast it well. And, uh, so to that end, I, I don't think I have anyone else specifically to speak about, but I thought that largely they all did well in their parts. I do too. And and there is something to that uh that point that part of the reason you show up for these movies, it's the same reason you watch um, you know, uh what's that Larry David show with R Richard Lewis in it, right? I mean, it's one of my favorite shows. And uh it's just because I get to see these people playing loosely themselves uh under their real names and they're just being slightly off people. And that's kind of why you show up for one of these movies. They're not quite in the part. Carrie Elwes was probably the most invested in the part, but Richard Lewis was showing up as Richard Lewis in Prince John's <laughs> yeah. clothes, you know? Yeah, right, right, um, right. There, there's something to that. And, and Dave Chappelle, like they made some some weirdly kind of uh, borderline racist things going on there. The hat turned around backwards with the, the plastic uh, sizing mechanism on it was just off to me on the black character like i was just you know but in general you get to see these people that you know and love or in dave Chappelle's case that you didn't know yet but would love uh kind of being themselves in a playground that is this other universe and that is fun to see it's fun to laugh at that and that's where i get uh, i i give credit to this movie even as the jokes are dated i am also dated and so when i put myself in that 90s headspace uh i i sure can chuckle at this movie and and i did have i had a fine time watching it with my kids who again were howling at the lightweight humor howling yeah, right right I will say another joke that I definitely appreciated at the end when when uh, uh, they're making Achu the sheriff, <laughs> like a black sheriff. Why not? It worked in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> There's another one. Another, that was a nice little meta uh, reference yeah, that he had. That was there. great. That was great. <laughs> yeah. So and, and that was something that did make me laugh. So I, I want to give credit where credit oh. is due to Mel Brooks, who wrote all of the original songs uh, in this movie. <laughs> I find Marion's song damned catchy 
It was stuck in my head for days. Yeah. I was surprised. I, I, at first it came up. I'm like, oh, man, this is one of those songs that's going to be terrible. But I'm like, it. I couldn't stop singing you can't. it. Yeah, you breathe it. You sleep it. Yep. The works. Yep. They were. I, I did not like the raps. I thought they were terrible. Nope. I loved that. Uh, I, I love when Carrie Elwes and uh, is belting um, uh, "The Night Is Young" and "You're So Beautiful," uh, nineteen thirty-seven crooner, yeah. famously covered by Dean Martin. Um, they did. The, they did a good job of of doing picking those songs and purposefully making it the lip sync just not really yeah. work that well right. in both his and Marion's <laughs> cases. Uh, the the rest of the score was done by a fellow named Hummy Man, and I mentioned to a, a friend that we were doing this. He said, "Oh, Hummy Man, he was my scoring teacher, my composition teacher in Seattle. Uh, apparently, oh. he teaches a film scoring class in Seattle, and uh, and this is a movie that he uh, talks about uh, as part of his example. So that's fun. Something that I think is good." Um, to pay attention to in parody films is how well is the music kind of playing with that parody. And in this yeah. case, I thought there were a few key moments from the Prince of Thieves score that we like so much that he directly pulled in that kind of and then played around with. I'm like, OK, this is he's doing a smart job of of parodying the music to kind of create that same atmosphere. And I really enjoyed that. I think so, too. Before um, before we jump too much farther, I, I we should just talk about Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson, Mel Brooks's part, because he does like to act in his movies. He generally is a character. And, uh, you know, in this case, he's playing Friar Tuck, or in this case, Rabbi Tuckman. I like <laughs> Rabbi Tuckman. I actually get a chuckle out of uh, all of these. I never take Mel Brooks's his acting performances too seriously. And in this case, he's the roving um, circumcisionist. And uh, I think that's funny. I mean, there were some funny, lightweight, you know, penis jokes. And the fact that he uses a teeny tiny guillotine to do the job uh, is <laughs> it, it's worth a, a gut laugh uh, the first time you see it. It was one of those things that was uh, I mean, it was kind of funny. And I was wondering when I started it, I'm like, OK, so where is Brooks going to pop up in this is I know he's not, you know, the king or any of the main characters. So it was funny to see him pop up as Friar Tuck and knowing him and his his heritage, turning it into a rabbi. I was like, OK, that's actually a pretty funny way to kind of shift things yeah. around a little bit. So I actually really enjoyed is. that bit quite a bit. Uh, I, I do want to add Mel Brooks. This is not the first time that Mel Brooks had tried to to do a uh, a Robin Hood themed media property. And in fact, in, in uh, 1970, uh, what did I say, 1975, uh, he actually did a 13-episode run of a show he called When Things Were Rotten. And I'll put the link in the show notes to the opening credits so you can get that song, song stuck in your head and see the cast and how, they're, uh, how they were building the, the lore of the age with that show. It was canceled. Apparently, it was not great. But Dick Van Patten, who plays the abbot here, played Friar Tuck in that show 13 years prior. So um, I thought that was an interesting little connection. He's been trying to do something with Robin Hood for a long time. Maybe back to the big question that it just wasn't yet time to lampoon Robin Hood in 1970s. <laughs> Maybe not quite. It needed another 13 years. Yeah. How did it do at award season? 
This wasn't a big award film, and rarely these types of films are. However, it did get noticed by the Young Artist Awards, who nominated it for Outstanding Family Motion Picture Comedy. Unfortunately, it did lose to Sleepless in Seattle, and I'd say that's a that's a you know the better film for sure. So, <laughs> so those Young Artist Awards uh, picked the right one in this case. I wonder it was because of the circumcision gags. As much that is one thing you can say. There is less circumcision in Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> True. How about the box office? Did you make any money? Mel Brooks spent an even $20 million making his spoof of the character and genre, which is about $35.4 million in today's dollars. The movie had a summer Wednesday release on July 28th, a few days before Rising Sun, So I Married an Axe Murderer, and Tom and Jerry the Movie. Of the new releases, it was only <laughs> beat by... Was that a pregnant pause for me? <laughs> Tom and for Jerry the, the Movie. <sighs> to, take, to take that in. Take it in, everybody. <laughs> of the new releases, it was only beat by Rising Sun, which opened in the number one spot, but there were still four other movies still doing well at the box office that kept this in sixth place. Those movies were In the Line of Fire, The Firm, Free Willy, and, of course, Jurassic Park. Still, this movie did well enough for itself, earning $35.7 million at the box office, or $63.2 million in today's dollars. That kept it in the black and gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $267,000. With its cult status continuing to grow as well, Brooks can put this on his hit list. And, as you said, it's apparently, according to him, big in the the video market, so... We, uh, maybe we're just not the audience, Andy. Maybe it's just not for us. Maybe. Well, did, did you see this one in theaters? I did. Okay. So it's, uh, so maybe it's just our age. Maybe yeah, we've just right. aged out of this one. We've aged out of it. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I laugh at dumb stuff all the time. I do no, too. And, you and know, honestly, I think yeah. if, if I weren't, if, if I hadn't been watching this movie for the podcast, I guarantee you, I would have probably different things to say about it. Like it was, it was worth a chuckle. There are things that don't, hold up when you look at it critically, when you look at it through the the lens of what of the lessons we've learned, the sociocultural lenses that uh, lens that we've or the lessons that we've learned. Um, but it, it's got some funny, dumb stuff in it that is sometimes just worth smiling at. It's the sort of movie that if I was in a hotel somewhere and this came on at night and I'd probably end up watching it and go, OK, yeah. you know, what? it kept me entertained. And sometimes that's all you need. Well, I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see the list of all the movies that we've talked about on this fair show. And uh, you can uh, swipe over in your show notes if you want. If if you feel so inclined, you tap flickchart. It'll take you to this movie where you can set up an account for yourself, and you can uh, add this one to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. That'll be great, because if it's a new account that you're setting up, then this movie might be number one. And that would be <laughs> crazy, <laughs> but possible. But possible. This is uh, this is the tagline that Flickchart says came on the came with the movie, and I think this speaks to kind of the lowbrow uh, sex humor that they were going for. The legend had it coming. Find out where Robin Hood put his little John. What made Will scarlet? <laughs> and what did Friar tuck into his tights that made Marion all of a quiver? I can't. I just not even with that. Any of the hope and credibility that I wanted to give to the movie just a minute ago, erase that. Come on. Oh, Robin Hood Men in Tights or Murder on the Orient Express. Murder on the Orient Express. Same for me. 
Robin Hood Men in Tights or Robin and the Seven Hoods? Robin Hood Men in Tights. Men in Tights for me. Robin Hood Men in Tights or Princess Mononoke? Princess Mononoke. Definitely Mononoke. Robin Hood Men in Tights or Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro? Lupin the Third. Lupin the Third for me as well. Robin Hood Men in Tights or Compulsion? Compulsion. Compulsion. Definitely, Easy. yeah. Robin Hood Men in Tights or the Book of Eli? Book of Eli, please. Book of Eli. Robin Hood Men in Tights or Atlantic City? I'm going to take Atlantic City. City. Atlantic yeah. City. Yeah. yeah. Robin Hood Men in Tights or Nikita? Nikita. Easy. I'll take Nikita as well. Robin Hood Men in Tights or Robin and Marion? Robin Hood Men in Tights. Boy, between the two, I think I'd prefer Robin and Marion, but I'd watch Robin Hood Men in Tights first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take it to the mat. All right, let's do it. One. One. Two. two three. three. Scissors. Rock. Crush you. You crush me. All right. Well, that puts Robin Hood Men in Tights in spot 312 on our chart. We are, this clearly is a sign of this series, but we have now four Robin Hood films all lined up in a row. <laughs> 312, 13, 14, and 15. Very funny that they keep ending up in this particular spot. When we do our re-ranks on, uh, on the Saturday Manet, uh, it'll be interesting to see some of these pop up and see if they yeah. end up changing place. Yeah, I agree with you because this did not perform as poorly on my own flick chart. Uh, how did it do for you? Um, it did. Okay. Yeah, this was only 25% on our chart. For me, it was a little higher. It ended up at uh, 2,353 out of 4,198, which is about a 44% on All right. my chart. See, that that's uh, you're only a little bit lower than mine. I'm at 488 out of 1102. That's a 56%. Uh, if I were to go by the algorithm at uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel, that should be a three star out of five. Um, I'm, you know, I was leaning toward two, two and a half, um, kind of a middling, middling fare, but uh, I, I could be swayed depending on how vicious you're feeling. I'm not going to be that vicious with this because it's light, it's easy, yeah. it's not harmful. Um, despite what you, despite the fact that you said it makes Prince of Thieves cry, <laughs> <laughs> um, and Carrie Elwes, I think, is the reason. I, I, I really think that he's the reason that I looked at this and go, okay, there's, there's enough with this that I can at least enjoy. So I'm giving it three stars and a heart. Look at you. I know. Well, I have, I have then major I will issues go with, with the it. algorithm, and I want to be right next to Andy. <laughs> okay. Three stars and a heart. There it is. Consider me swayed, sir. <laughs> I thought I was. I thought you were going to come in with one, one and a half stars and a lightning no, bolt. No, no, no. I mean, it's. I mean, probably if I if I really kind of grade the the film based on. Uh, my feelings about how Mel Brooks did as far as his quality of parody, I think that he did a pretty poor job. I think he he grabbed a lot of just dumb humor that isn't very good, but it still is an entertaining enough film. And I give the credit largely to the cast. I think that mm -hmm. they carry through with the comedy. They made me chuckle. It was an easy hour and a half. Uh, I didn't have any issues. So I still give it three stars and a like. All right, Andy. Well, that uh, takes us to goodness, man. Is this the end? We have we one more at, movie? We have one more in this massive Robin Hood series that we're doing. Do tell. 
I know. It's crazy that we finally are coming to the end. We're not looking at the most recent of the stories, as we have already said. We're not going to look at the Taron Edgerton, Jamie Foxx film. We are instead looking at Ridley Scott's film. We're going to be ending on his 2010 dip into the myth of Robin Hood with Russell Crowe and Kate Blanchett. That's where we'll be ending this whole thing. Now, is there a uh, particular version of this that I need to be looking at, or is there just the one? Um, I... I think I have the extended edition, and I don't know. I haven't seen it before, so I'm I'm getting ready to watch it here soon, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. But I'm pretty sure that the the uh, disc that I rented only has the one, but I may be wrong. It might have both versions, but I'm watching the extended because that's the one I hear is better. <laughs> Yeah, well, as with God Ridley, man, yeah. get it together the first time, right, dude. Right, just one take, Ridley. That's what we're going to call you from now on. Is that going to help? <laughs> uh, I had the version I have is the Robin Hood unrated director's cut, 2010. Okay, so, there you go. two hours and thirty five minutes. Yep, that's Natch. the one that we'll both be looking at. All right, good. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon sometimes doeth. Hmm? Has Amazon only sometimes doneth today for you? <laughs> well, yeah. I'm not overly thrilled with my choices on Amazon, but. Well, I I think with that, you should go first. As a gentleman, I will doff my hat to you, sir. All right. I've got one. And I, I find I really agree with this particular person. This is a two-star by, by Azad. And uh, but I just I like the way that he wrote it. So Azad uh, says it's an unfunny fossil. What I'm about to say is akin to declaring the earth is flat. Merry men sing their signature number. How much do you want to bet they'll start doing the can can? Yep, there it is. A black sheriff. Hang on. We better explain to the audience that it's a shout out to Blazing Saddles. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Little John's River is smaller than a toothpick. Wait. Have Chappelle straddle the sides to show how tiny it is. Otherwise, it'll just go over the audience's heads. Pratt Falls, Pratt Falls. Did I mention Pratt Falls? That goofy sheriff, he talks so funny. And so on. If I can predict the joke by recalling a Looney Tunes cartoon I watched at age six, we have a problem. It's not just this movie. A lot of comedy falls into this bracket, even now. To you, it may be classic and familiar, but to me, it's depressing. The only guy comfortable here is Chappelle, and maybe Richard Lewis, a wickedly fly Prince John. Why would they want to depose him? Otherwise, this was just painful to sit through. Oh, well, okay. He yeah. didn't like Terry Elwes. And I, I think he's th- wrong for that. That hurts. That hurts the most. Uh, Tom says uh, from April 2014 that Robin Hood Men in Tights misses the target every time. Do you see what Tom did there? Mm, misses arrow the target. Jokes. I think that was a Patriot arrow joke. This is the all lamest. <laughs> this is the lamest Mel Brooks movie I've ever seen. In fact, it's possibly the lamest movie of any kind I've ever seen. Every cheap joke misfires. Every performance utterly lacks truth, subtlety, and comic timing. Every racial epithet reeks. Every sexual double entendre stinks. And every plot turn turns right into a wall. Men in tights should be put in chains and tossed into a dungeon. 
Mel has done some terrific work. There were hysterical moments in Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, but not here. Men in Tights is a medieval mess. Mm. Really stuck the landing with the alliteration on medieval mess. <laughs> I applaud that. This I found this review helpful. Oh, well done, Amazon. Well done, contributors. You all have stepped up and saved the day. And good night. <laughs> Where's your line? Thanks, Amazon. I was waiting I, for you. To say. I don't know. What do you got? I was waiting for you to say something. I, like you had I, something I, to I say. Was, you were done. We've been you, doing this how long? Give it to take, man. <laughs> you closed your whole thing. You were perfectly set up to say, thanks, Amazon. And I thought you were going to. And then, <laughs> then you kept going. I was like, where is he going with this? Thanks, people. Uh, thanks, uh, commenters. Thanks, thanks, universe. <laughs> Good night, thanks, moon. Puppy. Good night, Good night stars. Night, Good... Thank you for, Good night, Good night, for letting bag. me watch this on your service. <laughs> All right, all right. And thank you, everyone. On YouTube. On YouTube. Good night, YouTube. Good night, YouTube. (laughs) I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.